This episode of the Business Samurai Podcast is brought to you by Lamar Marie Popcorn. You can get now one bag and get a second bag for half off with the code BARKER at checkout. So if you like your snacks a little sweet, a little salty, a little mixture of both, go check out LamarMarie.com and all of the flavors that they have for your next snacking sensation. That is LamarMarie.com with code Barker at checkout for buy one, get one half off. Welcome to the Business Samurai Podcast. I am your host, John Barker. I am pleased and excited to be joined by the Tesla-owning Dan Persico. In his youth, Dan was a cadet in the Civil Air Patrol, and the only reason I bring that up is because anybody that does anything related to aviation, I bring that up just because I'm enthusiastic about it. Dan served 15 years in the United States Air Force, working a variety of duties, including tactical aircraft maintenance, command and control actions that supported homeland security, military police, security forces, and advanced program management. And those tasks included production of classified and unclassified systems, designing continuity plans, and oversight of information assurance officers. Dan was most recent CIO slash CISO for the Virginia Department of Elections. He was responsible for overseeing business operations, technology support, software development, project management, cybersecurity, data privacy, and all the governance that are unique in the realm of elections oversight, which now has been designated as national critical infrastructure. He used his knowledge of elections policy and procedures to drive initiatives within the organization. He planned and organized and controlled all of the activities to ensure effective, efficient, and secure operations of each of their product lines within the portfolio of everything that he was in oversight, which was SCIO CISO, everything. Dan, appreciate you taking the time to be here, man. Thank you, John. Appreciate you having me. She's going to have a fun and hopefully not make you cry conversation as we discussed <laughs> before I hit the record button. <laughs> so, don't make fun of me, okay? I'm sensitive, right? Yeah, I, yeah the, you know, those Air Force guys. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I'm used to talking to Marines. <laughs> that's what my dad used to tell me. Being, <laughs> was a uh, former Marine. I have to say former Marine. Can't say ex-Marine. No, there, there's no My dad and granddad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what? give us a little bit. One of the things I really want to talk to you about was the role within election security, particularly with all of this junk that's been in the news for the last couple of years. But before you get to that point, how did how did your career in the Air Force and your experience lead you into that particular role with the state of Virginia? Great question. And I'm like, how did that happen? You know, I, I've been doing technology since I was 15, actually before then, but 15 employed. I worked, uh, worked for Best Buy back before it was the Geek Squad. I was, I think I was a cashier and then I was doing computer sales. And then I got, got into the computer repair business there and didn't do it very long, but I did get my A plus, I think I was like 15 years old. And, oh wow! and so I was, this was all while I was in high school and I was doing some volunteer programs in high school where we refurbished computers for folks that didn't have uh, the financial means to, to buy their own and things like that. And so I, it was a lot of just endpoint work, if you will, just fixing computers, you know, replacing parts and then, you know, handing them out. I did similar at Best Buy troubleshooting and home consumer grade computer stuff. Sure. Um, got somehow I was working, I was doing my high school, doing some work with our website and I needed to talk to, needed to talk to what was, I guess, the webmaster, I guess, at the time for Stafford County in Virginia. I, I 
reached out to her to see if she can do a link to our site or something like that. I think after a few conversations with her, I said, Hey, do you got any jobs, any interns, <laughs> whatever? And she's like, actually, and then I ended up going and working there for a little while, which was pretty fun. I learned a lot there. Also a, a brief stint working there after school for a few hours a day and got a lot of, got a lot of experience in more of an enterprise environment in IT did everything from touch endpoints to servers to network. I remember helping deploy the first wireless access points back in the, the 802 point, what is it? 802.1 or 802.11 A. A, A was first. <laughs> Way back in the day. And deploying these these wireless access points for the board of supervisors. And I think okay. 1998 or nine or something like that. And so I got a lot of experience. I was also doing a Cisco CCNA class while I was in high school and then ended up using my experience that I got working at Stafford County to go get my CCNA. And so I, I had both an A plus and CCNA before I ever even graduated high school. And, um, that's unusual at the time, probably, uh, at the time. Oh. extremely unusual. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I didn't really think much about it. Didn't really care all that much. I ended up joining the military because um, I wanted to, I wanted to pay for college. Didn't really <laughs> didn't have a, a college fund set up for me or rich parents that you know. So I I knew I was on my own. I was like, well, this will give me experience and also pay for college. And they had no computer jobs. Everybody wanted to, you know, do computers. So I said, whatever. I don't care. I'll just join whatever. But I want to. I want it to be something meaningful. And so I signed up to be an aircraft mechanic and I was the aircraft mechanic on F-16s for my cool. first four years or whatever. And it, I was hoping that I would somehow go to the computer side, but it really never happened. And then I ended up becoming a cop. But intertwined with all of this in those 14, 15 years in the military, I was always doing computer stuff. Even when I was an aircraft mechanic, everybody has a, everybody in the military has some sort of a, at least in the Air Force. Everyone in the Air Force has some additional duty that you do. You can be the fitness monitor, you can be the deployment manager. Well, I was the computer nerd for the group I was in. So the aircraft maintenance group that I was part of, I was like the liaison between the communications group and the maintenance group, and that also mean I did basic endpoint support. We had like email migrations, I was, I would get involved with those in addition to being an aircraft mechanic. So that kept me sharp. In, in so like a, you were like a network engineer administrator of their environments. I did have privileged access, but I wouldn't okay. say net, I was more like if somebody put a help desk ticket in or needed okay. a help desk ticket in, I was like first tier basically yeah. on site there. So I could fix like little things, whatnot. Again, when there's like bigger projects like migrations or equipment refreshes, I would obviously be a lot more involved with those things. And so I wasn't doing this. I'd say I spent maybe five to 10% of my time on a weekly basis doing that type of stuff. But it, what it did was it kept me sharp. It kept me still using terminology and lingo and seeing how I remember we did an exchange server migration one time and what was new, learning what was new in the, the new exchange environment from the previous areas I might have experience. And that, that helped me a lot, honestly, to keep sharp. And then, and then when I became a cop, I was doing that a little bit still, but what ended up happening was, is that I 
started getting into cyber crimes and protection of classified information. And they, at one point I, I got brought in as a cop because it was a compatible, what they call Air Force specialty code or AFSC. I had a compatible AFSC with the position that they could open up, but the primary purpose was not for me to be a cop was really for me to do cybersecurity. And that was more, I jumped into that. Uh, and I, I did spend a little time working at the FBI okay. as an IS. Right. I went reservist for a little while, like a year mm-hmm. or less, and didn't really enjoy it as much as I thought I would. But my what happened was my old boss, an older boss who was a cop, called me up one day. So I got this position as a cop position. It's got the potential to get promote, the promotion to this. And you could fill it. You, the billet for it is a cop billet. But I really need you to be an IT guy and help me secure these things because I have no idea what I'm doing. And so <laughs> I said, okay. So I went back to active duty and did that for a while until until I got out. Okay. And then when I got out, I was like, what am I going to do? I love being a cop. That was I never had any ambition to be a cop. That happened. There's a whole story there for another day. That's a uh, unique transition. Yeah, it wasn't. <laughs> it was. Let, let's just say it wasn't completely my choice. I had screwed the pooch on on some career progression things. Had some issues taking tests. To be honest with you, and yeah, I was pushed in that direction to put it nicely, and did not enjoy it really the first year or two. But then I really liked it because I every day was a different day. I was helping people. I learned a lot about that world, but also about myself. So it was a really good opportunity for me. And when I got out, I was like, I really like being a cop, but I don't really, there's no reciprocity in Virginia as an example. I can't, I'd have to basically start over and I don't really feel, I don't feel like starting over making 30, 40,000 a year when I'm making almost six figures and where I have the potential to make six figures at that point. And get shot at, have to put on a bulletproof vest and get shot at. I have a son. And Seems like that's a downside. It was one of those things where it's, do I want to, do I want to do what I really enjoy, but yet put myself at risk and threat, threaten, you know, the security of my family or just go sit behind a desk and do computer stuff and make a lot of money, a lot more money than being a cop anyway. And it was a balance between the two and still, I still kind of wish I was a cop some days, but uh, <laughs> I'm happy with, I'm happy with the direction I went. And so my first job out of the military, I was like, I think it was, I only spent about two or three months. I was a consultant, but then I became like, a, I went work for another company and became an IT manager, director type. And I've been doing the same since. And that was... 2014, 2015 timeframe. And I was working for a hospital system, a regional hospital system in Southwest Virginia at the time when I saw the advertisement for the CIO for Department of Elections. So it was just a blatant advertisement. It was a, I I think it was like a monster or a link. So you're a rando. You're a random person. (laughs) I wasn't even looking that hard. I don't believe. I wasn't really thrilled about that job I was in at the time, mm-hmm. not because the job wasn't good. I just really didn't agree with leadership and their direction. And a lot of my peers felt the same. And it was funny. So I left and my boss there, who I was pretty close with, we both left at the same time, essentially for the same reasons. And, but I got, I ended up applying to, you know, be the CIO at elect. And I had never 
I was IT director and I had never been a deputy or associate CIO before. And I thought that I had no chance at it. But when I, I went through the interview process, had multiple interviews and ultimately I was selected for the role. And I literally, as a military guy, never really cared too much for politics or was, it didn't intrigue me. So I didn't really know a lot about it. I knew technology, but I didn't know the business of elections, if you will, at the time. It's a completely different world. You know, having done a lot of things, whether it's working at Best Buy, doing computer stuff, or working at Stafford County government, doing computer stuff, or my various military roles. And then even when I got out, I, I worked for a multiple private sector organizations with different missions or business, different business, business types, if you will. I never ever experienced anything like the elections business, to be honest. It was very interesting. When I first came on board, I was, I was pretty surprised at the lack of maturity in the IT space, technology space within elections, but it started to make sense really quick. And to sum that up, it was, there wasn't a lot of, there wasn't a lot of drive or need, if you will, to make technology, put technology at the forefront of elections 10 years ago. So we had an, my division in at elections back in 2010 had one full-time person and one contractor from what I was told. That's what I wanted to ask, you know, my interjecting real quick, the structure of it. Did, were you like the first person that have a direct oversight of elections uh, that, as a sole responsibility? Were you the, essentially the first CIO, CISO of that? No. Or were you backfilling somebody? No. Some, so it was interesting. We had a, we had a long time CIO, a great guy. He ended up taking a role working for a contractor, I think he went to uh, like an SAIC or one of those that was supporting the Virginia Information Technologies Agency, also known as VITA. And he, he and I worked together numerous times and had great conversations, uh, really good guy, but he needed a change. He went on, but when he started, he was, I believe the first CIO. He, okay. he started in some, there was a lot of people that got brought in to do different IT related things. And a lot of those were contractors and there became a need to start flipping those contractors to full-timers because they saw a more inherent need to put a focus on technology, but it started as small again, 2010, one, two pe people. I think by the time 2015 came, maybe they had 10 people, 10 full-timers, somewhere around that might've been less. And it was really, really a still small, very small shop. Most of the efforts were focused on software development around the uh, Virginia's voter registration database, which is, it was called, is called Barris. And the, there was a company that built that was supporting that for the most part, but the agency apparently, again, this is secondhand information because I wasn't there at the time. It wasn't getting what it needed from this company and decided to bring in more of independent contractors and some more full-time staff to manage this platform. And, and then 2016 happened and everybody knows what happened in 2016 with the election between former president Donald Trump and uh, former secretary of state, Hillary Clinton. It, it, and then the initially the claims and then follow up with the intelligence that Russia was interfering with our elections or at least attempting to. And so that really highlighted 
technology in the election space more than ever did. So a lot of organizations in different sectors and sectors or businesses have had this experience at some point or another, whether it be financial sector, medical things, but all of those had kind of- There's a trigger point. They, they all were a, a lot more well off in 2015, 2016, and it was the election space time to get with the time, <laughs> if you will, and really put some emphasis and focus on that because it lights on you. It was, there was a tremendous amount of growth that, that came from what happened in 2016 mm -hmm. in the IT space with Virginia. And I'm sure it happened similarly in many states or localities. Every state elections are a state run thing. Every state has a, a, a different way of doing business. Some really put the emphasis on the localities running elections. In our case, in Virginia, it's a commonwealth. The localities do have the most control over elections. And my agency, at the sole purpose of it was for oversight over, over making sure that localities not only had what they needed, but that they were following all the laws and applicable regulations that, you know, that were in Virginia's like the constitution of Virginia, that was the main objective for the department of elections, but every locality has a general registrar and usually a deputy registrar and the, the buck stops with them more, more so than not. And we support them. So from a technology perspective, we provide them access to the Virginia voter registration database. We had a central database that the entire state used and that database contains all the voter records, the eligibility, all that stuff. And it was a mass, it's a massive product. It's a very complex. I can tell you some somewhat overly complex, not just from a developer perspective, but from an end user perspective, it wasn't necessarily the easiest thing to use. It didn't have all the greatest features. And I think that they're addressing that post my departure earlier this year, I, I there was a active RFP in progress to replace Varus. And I'm not sure obviously where that stands today, but the idea was to, to replace it with a more modern and more scalable product that will serve Virginia for a long time to come. And uh, the idea was that, okay, so we got this voter registration database that every locality, all 133 localities in Virginia use. How are they, how is that system maintained? How is it enhanced and how is it protected became a big focus after 2016. When my, when the, when my predecessor left, the one I was mentioning that went and worked for a contract company, they did bring in somebody, um, for a temporary period of time. And I'm not hundred percent sure of the story there, but it didn't last. I don't know if it was temporary on purpose or if it was just a, a situation where that individual wasn't a good fit, but they brought me on. And when they brought me on, I was taken aback by the level of maturity that the organization was at within the IT space. And I was warned my boss, the uh, commissioner had warned me about this throughout <laughs> my hiring process, but I didn't really understand how the maturity was lacking, how bad it really was. And, and there was a lot of reasons for that funding being one of those and, and just having a, a big picture oversight. I came from two previous roles where I was in hospital system and then a, a truly private sector organization. And those two organizations helped give me a really good insight about the way things should be. And so when I got to the department of elections, I immediately within my first week, I was like, wow, 
got, I've got a lot of work ahead of me. And, and I hit the ground running. I had to hit the ground running. Were you, you talking about kind of oversight and making sure the localities could run the elections? Were you responsible for not just the, the database, but like the voting machines and things mm-hmm. of that nature as well? Yeah. So we had, we had a few divisions within the department of elections. I was just one of the divisions, the IT division, and, but we had our election services division and they helped make elections happen. We had a, we had policy folks within that space as well. We had a communications division. We had training folks to help train registrars and things like that. We had an actual business part that also controlled the, the business aspects. So there was multiple divisions that all had different things. The IT thing, the IT division's primary focus was providing these products and services, just like anything, just like any organization, IT organization is providing. We had our, we had customers. Let me back up. First, we had the, our biggest system was the central voter registration mm-hmm. data, but we also had a campaign finance system. It is oh, okay. required by law that the political Candidates and such have to be very transparent about where their money's, where the money's coming from for their campaigns and things like that. Even just down to putting signs in front yard. If you don't have certain things on it, who this was, who the paid you know sponsor was or oh, who endorsed okay. or who was endorsing this, those rules about that. But the campaign finance system was used to, for anybody who had uh, any campaign that had to file what was what where the money was coming from and where it was going essentially and that was one of my that was my second largest system we also have our website our citizen portal website which you or me as residents of virginia could go in and register to vote request an absentee ballot since we do that now i think different things like that change of address type of stuff make sure that we're still registered properly, all those things. So that's our citizen portal. So those are our three main major products. Obviously one of them was completely public facing the campaign finance. One was for the campaigns themselves. And and then the central voter registration database is meant for the department of election staff, but also all of the registrars and their staff. And so we had a lot of different users accessing a lot of different systems. We had internal stuff too. We, under my purview, I implemented the Atlassian suite of products, if you're familiar, as an mm-hmm. example, Jira, Confluence. I was really focused on bringing knowledge management and collaborative project management approaches using those systems to back it through. When I got there, as an example, Agile was talked about, but it really wasn't. And so I really had a strong push to, to get us my division because it was primarily our focus was software development. We needed to be doing software development. The rest of the world is doing it, which is mostly Agile, some form of Agile right? Scaled or whatever. So we started, we started moving towards that and having systems like Jira and Confluence were really important to make that happen. And we use, we replaced a few of our other things. Like we had different ticketing systems for software development and we had a different ticketing system for just like normal help desk requests. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, why are we using all these different systems and supporting paying for licenses? Let's unify it to <laughs> that actually talks to itself living up to the government uh trend of inefficiency uh is the key <laughs> yeah and that was really a, a a huge focus because i've majority of my life in public sector whether it been the military working at the fbi stafford county right um, the majority of my life has been public sector and i've seen this all too often these inefficiencies and in a lot of ways wasteful spending 
and really wanted to, I, that was, that's always in the back of my mind. Whenever, whatever decision I was making uh, about how we were going to move forward, I always thought about the taxpayers first. And many of my staff or former staff would say the same. They would tell you, yeah, Dan was always like, taxpayer this, taxpayer that. And it was true because I'm a taxpayer, Virginia. This is my money going to this stuff. So I want us to do this. I want us to be efficient. I don't want a million products all over the place. It also makes it harder to... I was going to say, make your job's easier when you start con consolidating your tool suite into right. a handful of things versus 9,000. Exactly. Unified experience helps reduce administrative overhead is what I always said. And so those were some things, just small things that, that I tackled, especially early on. It took a long time to make some of those things happen, but that's the government way sometimes. So anyway, yeah, that was a major focus to bring, bring external best practices to the organization as well, to reduce inefficiencies and to reduce administrative overhead. And again, that was like really important as a CIO, but then there's a lot of other things going on too. And one of the reasons my former boss brought me on is because of my vast cybersecurity background. Mm -hmm. We had one information security analyst Wow! when I began. And that individual did not have all of what they needed to have to be successful, to be honest, in the role. And it was very hard. But you asked about like voting systems and, and I kind of mm -hmm. went off the rails a little bit there, trying to talk about the organizational structure and how our customer, who our customers, yeah. we had our public, we had our internal to the department customers, and then we had all the registrars and, and then anybody, any of the campaigns. One one of the, we had different areas. So we had these voter, we had these platforms or, or general IT systems, but then we also did have to support the certification process of all the voting technology. And that was one of the strangest things to me because I like, I'm coming in, I don't know anything of these scanning, these scanners, these electronic devices used to check voter voters in at polling locations. I had no idea. And there's multiple vendors out there that are approved in, in the state and they're all a little bit different. But what I did find out is that our certification process was very new and in its infancy when I first got there. We and we were revamping it at the time. It started before I got there, the revamping of that and it really made us, we created a certification process that helped match the election assistance commission at the federal level and exceed their standards that they recommend for states to follow. And it's now being fully implemented and it, it get, well, there's a lot of focus on security, even down to wiping thumb drives that, that, that are put in these computers there. They have so many like different audit trail type of things associated with how you transfer data is very spelled out. So that way there's nothing, no nefarious activity. And then once it's done and over with you or whether you're done using the device or it's brand new, it's got to follow like DOD wipe standards, seven pass wipes and things like that. Those were never really spelled out before where they are now. And a lot of work went into that. And I cannot take much of the credit there because we, when this was all happening, I was dealing with a lot of other things that I'll get into here in a minute. But one of my, one of my counterparts who, who left the agency before I did, he spent a lot of time working with different vendors, different localities and other experts and 
to, to come up with this to make it a really solid plan. So bottom line is that if any vendor wants to sell election equipment, such as scanners or, or about scanners or whatever, they have to go through a rigorous process. It's got to be approved all the way up to the state board of elections, which is the oversight for the department of elections. It was when I was first started a three member board. Now it is a five member board as of, I think over July 1st, I think it became a five member board and they filled those slots. They, that board has to approve any changes that are not like super minor, like typo type changes. They have to approve any change as recommended by the security team that I did eventually stand up and myself and the commissioner. Once that all, once all the internal approvals occurred, then it would go to the state board and we would have to present it to them in public session, what, you know, and they would have to say yay or nay to it. And then once that occurred, then that vendor could then sell whatever product it was to the localities. So that was a big deal standing it up, but a lot of other states are, were pretty impressed with it and, and even maybe starting their own certification process to match ours. I know that a lot of states like to look at us. We looked at other states too. We, I, Colorado is a, a really good, they set a really good standard when it comes to elections and are a lot like us. So I was, all, I had conversed with the Colorado, my CIO equivalent in Colorado quite often. I was going to ask if you interacted with a lot of your other counterparts in the other states to 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 kind of information share. Here's what we see works. Here's what we don't see works. I know that, like you said, each state has their own set of rules and the kind of things, the way to execute. But there's still best practices within security. And there's also things like if somebody is becoming a test bed yeah. of bad things, it's like, hey, 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 guys, just be aware we're we're experiencing this. Be on the yeah. lookout type of stuff. Absolutely. And we definitely got a lot better over the three years that I spent there, almost three years I spent in, in, in the department. W there was a lot of collaboration between our state, our different states, our federal partners, and even local partners. And then some even partners that are private sector. A CIS, they have the ISACs, the Information Sharing mm -hmm. and Analysis Centers, and they have them for financial. Have, well, there's a MS, multi-state ISAC, and under the MS ISAC, they stood up an elections infrastructure ISAC, which I also sat on their executive committee for a period of time while at elections. And that brought a lot of us together talking about different things and how we can make things better, but also offering intelligence to the best of the ability without getting too crazy in the classified realm from sure. you know, national the national security aspect. But there was intelligence sharing about threats. There was, we've had different, you know, like different big ransomwares that come out, right? That would say, they would send out messages. There's what you're looking for. Here's where you can report issues. Here's where you can get help if you are attacked or whatever. Like they were really good. Everybody bonded really well, in my opinion, as time went on from when I first started elect. And it was really actually felt very good. It felt people really care about our democracy and want to collaborate and want to share and want to be better because the building blocks of this country are at risk, essentially post 2016 and coming together was really good. Technology being as immature in the election space was, it was really important mm -hmm. to, to recognize that and to put a lot of effort and energy into that. And I think that we are in a lot better place. I, I hear a lot on the news about this, that other thing, Georgia, this, Arizona, that following this last the last presidential election. 
And I can't speak to any other state, but I can say that, holy cow, we were night and day from when I first started to when we had the last few elections, we've had major elections with our ability to, um, to protect ourselves, to share intelligence, to recover if there is an issue, to get the right people. I had FBI, CIS slash, you know, DHS on speed dial. I can call them anytime and say, hey, I this is an issue. I need help here, whatever. And they were there without a problem. And it, honestly, I, I don't, I didn't never need help with my area. Thank God I, my department, but I did support a lot of localities who really, some of them struggled. Yeah, that's call this the the salacious part of the conversation, at least a little bit. If you experienced it, you I, I remember you making a comment. I think we talked at some point last year where you were talking about the national exposure that Virginia had in this last election because it was only one of two governor's races in the whole country. So it, when something like that happens and you've got that spotlight on you. Are you getting, do you, one, do you feel the pressure? But two, are you getting a lot more outreach from those other places because the national focus is very limited? So yes. are you getting proactive phone calls from CISA and FBI? And Absolutely. And stuff? Absolutely. I, I, As, and it wasn't just this election, to be honest with you. It was, it, we, we had, there was a lot of proactivity throughout the last two years i'll put it that way my last two mm -hmm. years there even if it was smaller elections that weren't even on they were always there and a lot of times proactive there was a lot of pressure on the agency on the localities the registrars in this last governor's race it was in a way it was worse than the 2020 election for us no not in a way it was because and we knew going into that that there was you know not many elections it was an elections off year for most people but in virginia and my 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 former boss used to say all the time, like, we're always having elections. People ask. It's very annoying. I live in Stafford where you, it's super, super annoying. Sorry, I had to interject. On that. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> it's like all the time. There's like an election. I think like on average, we're having six elections a year. The last, pretty much every year I worked there, it felt like it was like, it could be a, something small, like a special election, or it could be a, a little larger state level election, or it could be a national election. There's always, there was like, there was always elections going on. And for, for me and my team, whatever, whether it was a big presidential or it was a Virginia governor's race, or it was a special election, honestly, there's more attention with the bigger races, but the amount of work we had to do on our end was the same getting the systems ready and all that. Our election services uh, division, as well as my division, had to put about as much effort in for every single election, no matter what the size was. Obviously, there's more, a little bit more to it with the bigger ones, but it sure. felt the same. And it was constant. It was, there, there was always an election. There was always the same concerns. And that made some of my change, most people at in the previous role and other previous roles will say, I'm, I'm a change agent, right? Like I, I, I go in and I'm looking for problems and I'm looking how to solve the problems. And that's one of my, one of my key contributions in, in the workplace overall. It was really hard to push forward change the way I wanted to, not just because I'm in the government entity, public sector is not always easy and it's really <laughs> slow and it gets bureaucratic at times. But when there's always an election going on, you can't be making changes to systems. We would go and change that. all this other stuff. And it really made it difficult to push the, the ball forward sometimes. So we really tried to like cram things in. Last year was a great example. The Virginia Information Technologies Agency had 
had a had to move the data center, the, their on-prem data center, to a new place, and we knew about that for a while. Unfortunately, some of their requirements and rules would not let us move some of our physical servers the way we do <laughs> to their new data center because they were virtualizing everything to make to meet the governor's executive order from a few years ago, which required all agencies to get to the cloud by X, Y, Z. Sure. And our, I spoke about Veris, the central voter registration mm-hmm. database. It was a beast. And one of our database servers required a lot of memory, a lot of memory that they would not be able to get for us in that environment. So we had to quickly pivot on a dime and make, I had to make a decision to move not just that platform to the cloud, but decided that if we're going to do one and the one that we're doing is our biggest, and we have all these integrations with the other parts of it, we might as well do it all. And so we were also supposed to be doing redistricting based off of the, the 2020, <laughs> was it 2020 census? Was it 2020? I guess I believe so. I know some of that stuff is going on now or it's just got wrapped up. So yeah. it's now going on right now, but we were supposed to start it last year on this time. And it was like, how are we going to do all this? And thank God for at the time that the census and the state was not, they were not ready to do it in the spring, in the late winter, spring of, of last year. And so last year we migrated every application and everything to the cloud, to, to Azure. And that was a big win, but it was a nightmare. And we were trying to do it in between special elections and we had the potential for having to start this redistricting and we didn't know when that was coming. So there was a lot and it took us till I think the majority of it got done by June, that migration. And I think we were the first agency, at least executive branch agency in Virginia to migrate all of its applications to the cloud. Meanwhile, while dealing with elections and whatnot and getting ready for this big gubernatorial one that we just went through in November, like there was so much going on. I thought 2020 was bad. 2021 honestly put 2020 to shame. And in and, and, and retrospect, I cannot tell you how last year was a lot. There was a lot going on between the cloud migration and these elections and projects that we're, and we're that, trying to keep in the moving forward. There was a lot. And so that that was long winded, but it was definitely a rough, a rough experience. How much, and I don't know if you experienced this at your time that, that is there, if it did some of the elected officials, if there was changeover, I'll say either from one party or ideology or priority, even if it was would play into either your decision-making or something that you had active going on. You mentioned the, the executive order, but I would imagine that let's say there was a switch over at a board of supervisors in a county or the state legislature swaps houses or something like that, that reshuffles things around. Did you experience any of that at your, in your time? Other than having to do special elections as a result, that, like if one person leaves and then they have to- but no, But no policies or no, no. no internal priority changes within the elections department. Not really. You experienced. I'm sure it's probably different today as we have a new governor. I left right at the beginning of January before the change of power and never really saw much policy change in, in that regard because I was the entire time I was there, a governor Northam was a governor and even though seats were changing. The one thing that I did, the one thing that did occur, but I would not have, it, it seemed normal for me because at the time, I think it, when both, I think both chambers went blue, 
mm-hmm. when I first the it was like the first year. I got yeah, that was like the first year in a long time that's happened. Yeah, like the first time in yeah. sixty years or something right. crazy or ever. That know? happened right when I got there, or shortly thereafter. And the amount of laws, election laws, were cra- I think we had fifty-seven or fifty-eight legislative changes ahead of twenty twenty that needed to be implemented, and a lot of those were this, like required IT changes, and it really crushed my development team and my and the QA folks and our infrastructure folks who were putting the doing these deployments or DevOps folks. It was just it was like there was change after change, and I remember. We didn't, a good example of our immaturity, we didn't have change control when I got there. There was people doing deployments without me even knowing about it as a CIO and then come in the next morning and Varus is down. And it's what happened. I called my director of this area, software development, and he didn't know exactly what was going on. And then I called this other guy and he said, oh yeah, we did that last night. And I'm like, okay, nobody told me about that. And now the system's down. We broke something. There's no record. It, like it was that type of crazy when I got, when I first got there, it didn't stay that way for very long. I think within <laughs> three months I had change control with, we were having weekly meetings and, and we made it all the directors basically were voting members on the change advisory board. And like, I would be the either overrule or a tiebreaker person. And you know, IT governance 101. But the whole point of saying that was that there were, because there were so many changes happening as a result of the legislative changes, some of these bills had been, they tried to get through for years. And if I guess in the case of the, the majority of legis, the legislative branch being blue now, that there was a lot of people on the Republican side that were blocking those bills. So as soon as they had majority, all these things started flowing like a faucet and uh, it, it was wild how many things that were coming through at any given point in time with that, because there was a system change here. Early voting was one of them. Early voting, which we do and absentee early, early slash absentee voting. That's how I, I do early voting personally. And that's, it's really awesome to have that ability, but the amount of changes. I thought about you last year. Yeah. Thanks for my life is way easier <laughs> now, but my team really like they, they work countless hours to, to implement these by the, cause it's not just that these laws get passed. They also have implementation deadlines. July 1st is when most laws go into effect in Virginia, but in some, and most of the, uh, these changes had to go in by July 1st of every year, every time they would do this, some of them could be staggered because it would be like the next presidential election or whatever, or the next federal election, I should say. And so that some of those gave us some leeway, but for the most part, they had to be implemented right away. And when it's hard for a legislator to know the implications of all these changes coming through all at once and how fragile our systems are sometimes Mm -hmm. specifically, I spoke about Varus and how these changes were a hard to make B we don't want to like have them making multiple changes at the same time, break something completely anomalous with, and having, oh, I have those conversations The chart it out was, was just, it was crazy. And then the deadline doesn't make it easy either because now you're rushing things. And we, because we were also immature in certain areas, I think I had like two QA people 
for having to QA all three major systems, three major platforms, any changes that happen to two people that can QA it. And I'm pulling other people in, some of our BAs and whatnot to help in that. Mm-hmm. And that's hurting them too. But like, I wish at, at points in time, I wish that the legislators knew the consequences of what they were doing to us and how it was very hard because I mean, we're still a small team. I think at the end, between contractors and employees, I might have been like 40 plus, just a little over 40 people at the max. And with all the customers, internal, external, right. and then in the field, with all the systems that we had, it was a lot. It was quite a bit. I know that they're in a better place now when any, whether we're talking about public sector or private sector, whenever there's requirements are downward driven, I believe that it's very important for those folks making those decisions to really truly understand the ramifications of what they're asking or directing. And it it would have been, although we were very successful in making all the changes that we were required to make, obviously, because we don't want to be in violation of the law and get sued. The fact of the matter is that it takes a toll on people. People have to do the work. And if the budget doesn't allow me to hire more people and train them up, that's going to make it even more difficult. I am very grateful for my team to this day and all the work that they did to make all these things happen. I can say with, without a doubt that Virginia did a great job in all the elections since I was there, making them accessible to everyone and free and fair. It's fair. No, that's, no, that's awesome. And, and I think I want to echo that sentiment because I, I've actually had that conversation recently um, that it seems like large, some of those fortune 100, 500 companies take that same approach. And as, as someone that's driven lots of projects, you got to have all the stakeholders at the table. It's right. not that you're against the changes that are coming, but don't make an arbitrary decision without understanding exactly the kind of the scope and level of effort that goes into that. And Absolutely. As a matter of fact, you'll be a champion of that instead of having arbitrary timeframes, which is for better or worse, in, in your case, probably what happens when you an elected official with no experience in this and making promises that they don't exactly understand in some cases. And I think it's, it's but, important for us, like people like me, and, and my, my peers and my leader, it's, I think it's also important that we try to educate them. And if I talk to you about localities, and I don't know how much time we have, but if I talked about localities and, and get more on the security topic, one of the things that I would do with, so I, I assisted in mul- multiple cyber attacks at localities across Virginia. Dive into that for a minute. Oh, without you. So, you know, one, at one point there was a rural locality who did not really have any more than a guy that showed up once a week for a few hours to hook up printers and whatnot. This locality got completely taken down by a ransomware attack and uh, was out of commission for a month and a half. Basic services like life safety type things like 911 and things were back up pretty quick or either were up pretty quick or were not affected in the same way. So the worry, the concern there wasn't bad, but that's still a huge concern and validating that they're okay was really important. But when all of your constituent services, whether it's getting a building permit, election, right. whatever, pay water, I pay the water bill, like personal property taxes, things like that. When you can't do those things, that that puts people that puts you in a grinding halt. And it's not just about the locality collecting revenue, but if I'm if I'm building a house or want to put stairs off my deck, and I need a building permit, and yep. I can't do it because you're you're 
your phones are down, can't get in touch with you. I walk in, computers are down, can't do nothing for you. That's pretty bad. And uh, that happens numerous times in my tenure. And because there was a law that was passed back in, I think the 2019 General Assembly session that basically gave the Department of Elections the authority to ensure that locality security met a specific set of standards that eventually myself and a work group created and then the state board promulgated out to all the counties. So like you, when, and when you say security, not just election security, but you're talking about whole infrastructure, whole everything security. So here was the thought process here and I'm going to bounce around a little bit. So a few years ago, there was a, a locality out there. And I said this in some public speeches that I made. You can probably Google it pretty easily too. No, this is, this won't be a public, but bottom line, they bought, um, was it Kaspersky? Yeah. I think they bought. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. And you might have heard this story off. Uh, we talked about this maybe off on uh, side or something. At one time, they got Kaspersky, that that individual that was the sole information security officer or analyst. When I got to the agency, had said can't use that. It's like Russian. It's it's a Russian product. That was and yes. That was a big time news thing. And it's on the DHS do not use list. Basically, she ta- told the whoever that was running IT in this locality. They said, don't care, money spent, we're keeping it. My boss ended up calling, I think it was my boss that ended up calling the locality county administrator, city manager type, and they sided with the IT thing. Eventually, it it caused a lot of waves. Eventually, they removed, we negotiated for them to remove it from the election computers. But this got brought up. And so the law basically says that because the registrars in each locality are supported by the by the locality they're not their paychecks come from the locality but some of that money comes from the state there's some reimbursement for the registrar but they're not really full state employees the i think they're considered constitutional officers so they are in a way independent they don't report up through the county administrator city manager but i want to say I want to say something uh, only because you triggered a thought and mm-hmm. I want to tell you a story after you get done. Okay. I was told board of supervisors were constitutional authorities and they didn't have to abide by any of the IT regulations of anybody uh, anywhere. Yeah, and I looked in the face and I said, you one, I don't believe you, but two, anyway, I digress. I don't know. I don't know about that one. I, the board of supervisor, they're supposed to follow the same rules that are driven by the policies and procedures from the IT department. If there is an IT department. But that's all. We'll talk about that. That's interesting. That's interesting. So these folks are getting the registrars are are getting their computers from the locality. And if we use the locality, I was just starting to talk about the ransomware attack. They got one IT contractor that shows up once a week. Sure. And for a few hours and might just be a computer savvy person, but may not have an A plus certification, let alone something more. You can imagine there's no group policies. You'd be lucky if there's decent endpoint protection. There's no access control. There's no nothing. So, (laughs) so we, yeah. So these computers though are connecting back to our central voter registration database. And that was the linchpin. If you are connecting to our system with your systems, they have to meet this requirement. And so the scope of it is just elections computers, but Hey, you still need to have a firewall. 
And if those election computer systems are on a domain, that domain controller now becomes part of that the scope. Are you on? Are you in the same network? Or yeah, are you yeah. On the same subnet. Even, uh-huh. if you, even if you VLAN it, it doesn't matter. You got to think about everything that that touches. Where something can happen. So this caused a lot of issues, and it still is causing issues. This law, and it, but it's the first time that a law basically put any sort of cybersecurity requirements over localities in any way. Uh, shape or form now the scope was again just elections activities connecting back okay but that scope can be expanded some localities it's very easy to do that i've made the comment i said i can take a cybersecurity hole how far deep do you want to go <laughs> the, the the problem was is some of this stuff costs a lot of money and, and if sure you, if you have a rural locality that doesn't have the the revenue, if you will, to hire IT folks or the right IT folks or the right products, then you're kind of in a, between a rock and a hard place. I think, and I, I think that some localities chose to complete or to create completely independent networks and computer systems because they said it was too much work, too much effort to, to do it across their whole enterprise. And I begged and pleaded on the side saying this is not the right move this is the opportunity that you guys should be taking to do xyz across your entire platform as much as possible because if you just say you're prone to your okay election the elections activity in the locality might be okay but what about your 911 dispatch that's a life safety thing wouldn't if they're on the same network wouldn't you want to like just you know kill two birds with one stone if you could and some people chose different and it's not my, it was not my place as the, the POC or head of that whole program and instituting this on behalf of the state board. It, it, it wasn't my place to tell them how to do it. I just said, here's the requirements. Here's what you got to do to meet them. You choose whatever way you want to meet them. My main concern is the protection of the voter registration database and safe and secure elections in Virginia. But if I take my CIO hat off and put my Dan Persico hat on, just me, I don't do that to yourself. And here's why the ransomware attack that we had that I was starting to talk about a month and a half, a month and a half of, I would say, I would say two weeks of completely nothing. After about two weeks, some main things started coming back. We were able to recover some main things. And then after a month, they started getting more of the outliers back online. But it was for two to three weeks, almost completely crippled. You know what I'm saying? And a locality can't do it, what it's meant to do, because it didn't take the proactive steps. So one of the things that I did through this process and through some others is I met with the state, state board. I'm sorry, I met with the board of supervisors. In some cases, I met with the electoral board at the localities who oversee the registrar and hire the registrar. I met with these folks and I said, you got to invest in this because this is what happens when you don't. You, it, and you don't want this to happen again. We're having emergency meetings until midnight and blah, blah, blah. Everyone is freaking out right now. This could have been prevented if there was more proactivity and you can't always protect against all threats. But one thing that they really screwed the pooch on in this one case, they didn't have offsite backups. They had an attached NAS storage on a server that had a password that was basically 
Password. Password. <laughs> that's like that's the security we're talking about and the lack of contingency planning or incident response. There's not sure. like nobody, nobody knew what to do when this happened either. It took a week just to get everybody involved. And I, when it got to me is I'm the one that started making the phone calls. I had within about 12 hours of finding out, I had everybody on the phone from FBI and CISA, state police, national guard. And everyone showed up and they, everyone came together and did the right thing. But boy, oh boy, it was a mess. And here's the other thing. In that case, the locality county administrator did not want to hear advice from all these people, including me. Shut me out. Shut me down. She was worried about her reputation more than recovering. And so word to all leaders out there. Put your put your own emotions and your job security aside, your job security minded self aside for a second and do the right thing, because that that individual made a lot of missteps, a lot of missteps. I wanna add, yeah, I, I want to ask it right there. Buddy. Yeah, I want to I'm going to ask a short question and then I want to tell you experience I had and see if this is what you in the localities you talked about getting cyber standards and there was a law there, were you using like a NIST standard or did you make up your own set of rules? We actually did start from the NIST, but we knew that there was no way that all the localities, all 133 localities were ever going to meet all. Which one, were, which special publication were you uh, trying to align to? CSF, the cybersecurity framework. Just a, just a CSF one. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah. Cause we started from there and we did do top 20, top eight. We combined gotcha. the two of those and we, so the work group, there was a work group that was formed and it, the, the work group was led by me. I was the, the chairman for it, but I had locality IT directors, CIOs slash CISOs slash, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you name it as part of, I also had JLARC, the, the legislative audit, I forget what the acronym stands for from the state that were there. I had representatives from the VML and BACO, the Virginia Municipality League and the Virginia mm -hmm. Association of Counties. We had a huge work group, we met every three weeks from like May of 2019 through October, every three weeks we met in person and for four hours, we had four hour sessions in the Richmond area and we, it started off bad. I'd make the joke, like people were throwing chairs at each other, but people were raising their voices. It was not because we had like, we had everything from who are you big state to tell us what to do. And right. we had people like, that's not, that's just bullshit. We shouldn't have to do that. And it was, you name it. We had some, it was a lot of infighting, but eventually I say within the first month or two of doing this, like people got on track and started to see the light and what we're trying to do yeah. here. And it became that they, it, it ended up being the standards were ended up being a reasonable set of expectations um, that we can push on localities. And the idea was to, to now, as of my last meeting with the group, because we have a work, we saw, we have an advisory group now that is all the time that meets to decide if the standards need to be adjusted. So the idea is that the standards will be adjusted based off of the threat landscape. And, okay. and but we started, start small and then figure out where we're at. There's a lot of folks that are still struggling there and we are doing different things that we had, we got a, through UVA and a consortium with a bunch of colleges, including Virginia Tech, UVA, 
Norfolk State, George Mason, I'm trying to think, VCU is a big one. We create, we're creating a cyber navigator program to get, have students come and help localities. So they learn and then the localities can get some help. So that program is taking off. We did a pilot with a, a locality in Southwest Virginia that I led last summer in the fall, and it did produce some good outcomes there. But there's a lot of different things in the works there to try to increase the overall cybersecurity posture of the Commonwealth because localities are a part of that. It's, it's funny you mentioned the universities because in the latest study that came out of the biggest industries that are hit, universities and research institutions are number one, and it's not even close if you go look at the chart. Yep. So I'll tell you experience that I had a few years ago with another county as far as I wasn't looking for anything. I was doing some volunteer work for the for the local chamber of commerce, and I came across something that just wasn't right. Uh-huh. And so I knew everybody in play except for the local IT staff and ended up setting up a meeting. And I said, because I wasn't necessarily getting responses. And then, well, I knew the county administrator, so I knew how to make it happen. <laughs> so I reached out and had the, the meeting to understand the lack of budget, the lack of resources, and no kidding, almost proud and bragging about the ability to do things that are horrible mm -hmm. as far as taking equipment past end of life. And I'm not talking obviously election equipment, but I know these guys had purview over essentially everything, sheriff, first responders, all of that type of stuff. And a very minuscule staff for even just the amount of people to support, much less who knows what systems are and stuff are in play. Mm -hmm. Is that, do you see with now all of the exposure in the local government, I use elections obviously as being a news dominating piece of, of mm -hmm. technology or state governments, that there's going to be a ramp up in funding to better implement technology across the board and cybersecurity standards. I, I certainly hope so. I know that there's a, there was a lot of talk about this, this infrastructure bill at the national level and mm -hmm. what that would be used for. I know that CISA is up in their game with hiring a lot more people, making the pay. But you still got to have the boots on the ground in the localities to execute day to day. That's all true, but it starts at the top. And, you know, it, again, if you, technology is not cheap. Paying good technologists is also not cheap. If you want somebody good, not somebody that can just connect a printer or reboot a computer for you, these people either go to school for it or they spend a lot of money getting certified and etc etc you cannot look you can't expect a locality that's got a very small population to generate the amount of revenue themselves to right. pay somebody 150,000 a year to run their IT and security stuff you just that's just not going to happen so without grants or some external funding you're going to continue to see that that being a problem now there are ways around it and you could do different things with contractors and whatnot. So you're not paying maybe for somebody on full time, but a lot of the time it, it's just, there's a, the other component here that I've noticed is that you have leaders in roles like boards of supervisors, county administrators and things like that, and not to be disrespectful to any of them. But a lot of those folks are not. I know where you're going because I've said discriminatory, but if you have somebody who's 80 years old, who's retired and been in, got appointed to this position or got elected to this position, they know what they know what their, uh, 
advisors tell them and who knows what kind of their knowledge background is and what they see threats to be and where they want to approve budgets to that for that money to go here there anywhere that is a huge problem more so in rural localities than not that i see i I think i mentioned earlier educating leaders is a huge component to a successful cybersecurity program or operation. And I will say I am very thankful. I wasn't keen about the 57 legislative changes or 58 legislative changes. (laughs) But I am very thankful to them because they gave me three bodies, three brand new full-time positions Mm -hmm. just to stand up. I stood up a cybersecurity team in elections back in 2020. And the team is going strong now. I heard it just hired a CISO and I'm really happy about that. I was able to get that. But I think for if I was one of those members of the General Assembly and I see this bill for cybersecurity around elections, I couldn't could not vote for it. That would just really be, really be bad, look bad. But and I'm thankful that that we got those spots. But what happens at these localities or other states or other even nonprofits and private sector? Like if the leaders don't understand the risk of not doing something because nobody's advised them, or if they've been advised and they're just like, I got to do this. Uh, a friend of mine who represented localities in Virginia through one of the lobbying groups, when I was having a conversation with them about this kind of situation. And they said, well, Dan, if it's between another deputy on the street or a fire truck or your security requirements for computers, what do you think is more important? What do you think that the board of supervisors or whoever's going to think is more important? And I said, I know the answer. To, I know your answer to that, but that is not my answer. It depends on what's going on as a cop, former cop who has was had to pull extra shifts at times and do extra things because our manning was low or our cars were broke because we we used our cars into the our cop cars into the ground and I'd work an entire shift without heat in the middle of winter in a vehicle because they couldn't afford to fix it having been there I get it I get some of the sentiment that individuals tell me but I'm like okay so it's great if you have more deputies and more fire trucks, but what happens when you can't dispatch them because the entire 911 dispatch system is down, your radios are down, your phones are down because you didn't think about the technology implication of this. Or even worse, think about it this way. As a cop, if I pull somebody over and I run an NCIC check on the license plate or the driver's license and or the driver's license, and the person has an active warrant armed and dangerous obviously if i pull somebody over and like the vehicle was flagged for having it's going to tell me right away and i'm not going to approach that vehicle until i have backup it becomes a high risk traffic stop at that point but if i don't know that because the computers are down and i can't get that information and i walk up to the car say license registration here's the reason i pulled you over and the guy just pulls a gun out and shoots me now you have an officer dead because of a technology issue. People don't realize how technology has truly become the cornerstone of every aspect of our society. And if we're not protecting it, we're not investing in it, and we're not protecting it, we're gonna, we're gonna, these threat actors are gonna always stay, you know, ahead of us, even though we're trying to stay ahead of them. 
and they will always continue to wreak havoc for whatever mo their motives are. They will continue to do that. So it is really important that leaders at all levels, all sectors realize that organizational risk management is needs to account for our technology risk or digital risk, sensitive data, things like that. I, I know that one of the things that I did as well at Elect is introduce data privacy. We might have, a have hired a privacy officer and made it part of the cybersecurity thing. I'm going to talk about that next week. And that, that I was telling you earlier, before we went live, I was, I'm speaking at an event next week, a government innovation event. And I'm going to really you know, talk a lot about how it's important to look at cybersecurity in a more organizational risk management perspective, but also how you can include data privacy. Data privacy has got made huge out of GDPR and over in, in the European Union um, uh, a few years ago, back in 2016, I think is when it went into effect. California's got some similar rules. We, we passed a consumer data privacy law in Virginia last year. Those are huge. And, it, and cybersecurity, data privacy, and organizational compliance and organizational risk should all be folded into one area, really. And, and it needs to be, it needs to go to the CEO or the board's that, that maybe oversee or their, whatever the title is at the top. It needs to get to the top so that people are, are funding the proper things and really addressing the risk before they become a disaster for the organization. It happens so many times if you read articles. But the other thing I hear all the time, I'm gonna shut up after this, it's not gonna happen to us until it does. Absolutely. I know you're not there anymore and I wanted to ask this as a final question to wrap up. If you on your way out could have like waved the magic wand in the public sector and in, in the areas that you were doing to go, I, you accomplished a lot with the modernization to the cloud and getting some of the cybersecurity principles in place. What is that thing that you could have, you felt that was maybe left unfinished or you would have like, you could snapped your fingers would have been the next thing. Honestly, I think I said it on the right trajectory. It was more of a follow through. There were some bigger issues that I wanted to work on at the state overall and, and bring other partners in to help fix. I really wanted to unify cybersecurity across the Commonwealth. Efforts to do so already, and some of those were I was involved with, but it was really important to, we, in my opinion, looking back, and I will say this, even if it probably gets me in trouble if anybody sees this. This is how I'm gonna title the episode now. Here we go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, cybersecurity, data privacy, those key thing, those key areas to combat the or mitigate digital risk need to be more unified. In Virginia, you got your three branches. VITA, the Virginia Information Technology Agency, is by law going to take care of security and infrastructure for all executive branch agencies, which is the majority of the state. But then you have outlying independent agencies, you've got the legislative branch who did actually suffer uh, an attack um, I a few months ago, yep. um, a ransomware attack. Yeah. And then you have your judicial branch and you've got organizations like state police, Virginia's Homeland Security Group, or well, I forget what department, I forget what their public safety and Homeland Security for Virginia. And they have some, uh, roles and responsibilities over incident management and emergencies such as a ransomware attack. And then you've got localities and then you've got these other kind of outliers out there that somehow contribute. There is not a unified front. I, I was aware that 
previously, I think, what was the, the last Republican governor? It was before McCullough, uh, right? Yeah, I'm blanking myself now. Because Virginia does one, for anybody listening, Virginia does one-term governors. They can run again, but they can't be concurrent. Exactly. But there was the last Republican governor, and I can't remember who it is off the top of my head. From, I'm blanking. I know it's like the, the word there that his name is on the tip of my tongue. They Under that administration, they had a secretary of technology um, back then that was disbanded, I think, when around the time Terry McAuliffe. No, no, McAuliffe, I believe, had the last one. Um, because that was a uh, shoot. I've actually talked to her, Karen. <laughs> okay, gotcha. Uh, I'm, yeah, I'm blanking. I'm, yeah, they I'm they rolled timeline because I wasn't really. This is before my time. Yeah, but they had a second, and and they actually it was Northam that rolled it up underneath the econ yeah. e, the economic development secretary secretary no secretary yeah. administration at Talender after that and and so that but that was just like i think it's really important to have that at the governor's cabinet level to have somebody mm -hmm. yes technology not just the operational side but the cybersecurity side and then other things the principles within there to you know, when you were talking about organizational risk and, and so apologies for not being able to remember but i just karen, know it was karen jackson yeah karen jackson was the last one mm -hmm. because i remember talking to her and i don't know what, what uh yunkin if he's reinstated it or have left this structure the same he is not the structure is currently the same as of right now and it's funny because the current secretary of administration as i've been told is a former cio of the fed Federal reserve uh i don't okay. know like a specific location or whatever so that was cool to hear that okay at least have a, they have a technologist in that role I don't know much about the, the the individual, but I'm happy that they're that that's there because that that is helping put technology. But that still doesn't. That's the executive branch again. We need yep. to a little bit bigger, and we need to have some form of whether it's a work group, advisory group, or, or board or something that brings all of this together and does include localities. Right. Because even though the state can't force localities to do anything. Theoretically, I think it's I think we all have a we all have a common need to stay ahead of this, no matter what part of the Virginia government you are. And we can even include some of the the public sector universities, state run schools. They there's a lot of smart people yeah. over the tech that I'm I know um, tech UVA. I deal with some of these computer science folks, some of the research programs and research labs that they have, like they're bleeding edge. And we can really, honestly, if we unify better, we can really make the Commonwealth of Virginia stronger. And then if we do that, maybe other states will fall suit if they're not, or if there's nobody else out there doing that already, because I'm not familiar with every state and how they structure it. But, sure. but I will say it's a little disjointed and that disjointedness is, I always equate this back to the 9-11 commission report. What happened? What, what are some of the biggest failures of 9-11? and why it happened. It was a failure to communicate. It was a failure to yep. unify. And if we can't take lessons of something like that catastrophic and and then apply those to, to any sort of forward risk management principles in cybersecurity or otherwise, right, then we're bound to have problems. And I don't want to see that, not just for myself, but for my family, friends, my child. Sure. I, want to, I want us to be... I want us to be 10 steps ahead of them, bad guys all the time. That's my goal. And I hope that, that we can get to that place by changing our mindset, being more proactive and not saying, oh, well, that's never going to happen to us. 
and making excuses for why we can't fund these things. It's really important. No, and I'll wrap this up with a saying I always hear from the Marine Corps to rub it in. <laughs> oh, boy. We don't want to show we don't want to show up to a fair fight. <laughs> exactly. exactly. That's uh we we gotta we gotta keep the fight unfair, gotta stay ahead. Yeah. Anyway, I really appreciate the time. Yeah. If anybody wants to reach out, connect with you, what's the best place? They could hit me up on LinkedIn or and send me a message on there. Sounds Thanks good. Time. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, John. Appreciate it.